it's, it's a focus on really unity, the oneness that God would have for us. I'd like to start with an illustration first, and then we'll pray and read our text. About 20 years ago, a pastor of a prosperous white church in southern U.S. town became burdened for his community at large. A black janitor of this church was gracious Christian, and the two men began to meet weekly for Bible study and prayer time together. After a few months, the church board approached the pastor and told him he had to stop having fellowship with this man because it was bad for the church image. When he told them, he, he could not do that because he felt the fellowshipping with the, and ministering to him was the Lord's will. And virtually no store in town would do business with him. He could not buy clothes, gas, even groceries. Before long, he had a nervous breakdown, was taken to a psychiatric ward of a hospital in a nearby large city, where on the second day, he dived out of the window and killed himself. Within the church body, there's a division, and we're going to look at that in many, many different ways. And God would have us one, not just Calvary Chapel or this denomination, but wherever you meet another believer, we should be one, no matter what that culture, no matter what that background is. God has made a way through the cross that we are one and one in Him. Father, thank You for Your Word that we're going to look at today. We ask that You would bring illumination, You would bring understanding uh, to the text. And Lord, that we would understand really Your intent, that we would not interpret it through our own eyes, but how you would have us interpreted. So we ask again that your spirit would bring that illumination, help us to understand that truth, that truth that would set us free. So Lord, we commit this time to you and ask that you would lead us and guide us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, follow with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. That's our text. If you have your Bibles, open it up. Again, Ephesians Chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 11. Now, Ephesians really focuses on the church while you're looking there. And, and the first part of Ephesians, the first three chapters, are what we call doctrine. The second half will be duty. And that's typically of how Paul taught. First, the doctrine, the teaching, and then how do we apply it to our lives. So we're in that doctrinal area. In verse 11, it says this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at a time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in him he might make the two into one a new man, thus establishing peace. And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, and by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. For through him we were both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built up together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. I'd like to read also from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 to be on the screen here. Notice what it says, being diligent to preserve unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you also were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and all. We're never called to make unity. Please understand, we're never called to go out and make unity. What we're called to in our text here, in verse three, it says, be diligent to preserve the unity. That means that whenever you meet another brother, another sister in the Lord, you'll have a kindred spirit. You know that they love the Lord. And you enjoy and you want to be around brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's a mark of maturity because, see, not everyone, not every believer wants to hang around with other believers because oftentimes the reason is because it convicts them. They're still trying to keep one foot in the world. They're still playing the hokey pokey, one foot in and and one foot out. But you as a believer, when you recognize another believer, you want to be with that believer. And we are to preserve that unity. It means we are to go out of our way, not to allow anything to get between the brethren, between another brother and another church, even though there's differences, and I'm going to say preferences. So the first thing I want to call your attention to is really to preserve that unity. But there's always this alienation that we go to this church or that church or we're this culture or that culture. And so often the body is fractured, it's broken, it's divided. It leaves behind it a trail of broken people, people that are no longer in church because they they saw the hypocrisy of the church because the church hasn't gone about preserving the unity has God called us to do. There's an alienation, really, first of all, apart from Christ. The the disunity within the, the Ephesian church was primarily between the Jewish and the Gentile. The Bible makes it clear there are Jews and Gentiles or believers and unbelievers. It never really addresses culture. But you're either a believer or an unbeliever. And it was this division as the people came into the church that they were to be one in Christ that kept dividing them. They were Jews and they were Gentiles. And they approached God in a different way and and yet they were struggling to make it work. And this is why Paul writes to them. In fact, Paul would write later to them about the mystery that's in Christ. And in Ephesians 3, Look at verses four and six on the screen. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and the prophets in the spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs. Fellow partakers, they're too far away 
to come to Christ. They're too evil, too wicked. In reality, they're prime candidates for the the grace of God. Look with me again in Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself, referring to Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. See, again, Christ is our peace, and he made us one, one in him. I don't care what the name is on the outside, if they worship Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of the Bible, the one who was born of a virgin birth, the one who lived a sinless life, who went to the cross and died, was raised from the grave, who ascended to the Father are just some of the things, then we should have unity with them, whether they worship in a different style, they read a different translation. And yet churches so often divide over things that are preferences. And the world is watching, the church is fractured, people scattered that no longer attend the church. Now the passage, the, the focus in, again is this spiritual oneness. Again, it says they were both made one. They were one new man in verse 15. In verse 16, it says they were one body. In verses 14, 16, 18 in our text, it uses that term both. And then in verses 21 and 22, they were together. It's important to understand the whole emphasis of this text is this oneness that we have in Christ. And I want to ask you a question to think about. What are you doing to preserve the unity of the body of Christ. Because we're called to preserve that unity, not divide that unity. In God's sovereignty, please understand that God chose the Jews to be a special people, a unique people, but they were to be a a channel of blessings to all. See, they didn't understand that. It, It was in the scripture. It was explained to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they just didn't get it. And every time I come to a passage like that and I see someone doesn't get it, and I have to ask the Lord, what is it in my life, in my reading, what am I not getting? What am I not trusting in? What am I not doing that you would have me do? God would have us remain teachable. Amos 3.2 says this, you only have I chosen among the families of the earth And then in Genesis 12, 3, notice what it says. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth will be a blessing. See, that was God's intent right from the very beginning that he would use them to be a light unto the nations, referring to the Gentiles, that all men would come into the the kingdom of God. That they would come to recognize Jesus as the Messiah that there's hope in God, that they would, through their actions, through their law, that they would reveal the very nature and character of God. But unfortunately, Israel never fulfilled their calling. He came to his own, they received him not. We know in 70 AD, again, Jerusalem was destroyed. The sacrificial system was destroyed. They just didn't get it. Now, the baton has been passed on to you and me. We have the Great Commission. We are, too, to be a light unto the nations, but not only to the nations, to Israel themselves. Because as we go and we make disciples, we're to go to the Jew first and then the Gentile. The scripture is very clear 
upon that. Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Matthew 28, 19. Now therefore go and make disciples of all nations, meaning that God has a plan for every person on this planet to be reached. Now that doesn't mean that every person is going to be saved, but where to go? Now we can go by sponsoring missionaries. We can go on short-term missions. We can go in many ways by just giving and helping and praying for the, the missionaries around the world. Jonah, in the book of Jonah, when God called him again, if you remember, to, to preach to Nineveh, the prophet fled in the opposite direction. In Jonah 4, 1 and 2, notice it says, but it, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you were gracious, compassionate God slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah was called to, to bring the message, the need of repentance. Destruction was coming. Judgment was coming unless they would repent. And, and Jonah knew God. He knew the heart of God. Again, he says, you're compassionate, slow to anger. In fact, you're forgiving and I don't want to see these people forgiven because he had this prejudice, this hatred, this bitterness in his heart. And, and so often that's why people don't go because the anger and the bitterness in them is destroying them. Look with me at Isaiah 42, verses six and seven. I am the Lord and I've called you in righteousness and I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant people, a light to the nations to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. See, this was again being spoken to Israel. This is the very heart of God. God wants to open the eyes of the blind. And you and I know people that are blind to God's word. People that need to know his grace, his mercy, his character, know what he's done for them. You and I are holding some of the most precious words the gospel that can change a life, can save a person from the, the pit of destruction. But when a person doesn't know, alienated from really knowing who God is, they're in a crisis situation. Well, again, there's this social alienation. The first kind of alienation is, is social. And formally, notice in your text, formally you are Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Paul calls the readers. He's speaking, notice, to Gentiles. They were, again, the uncircumcision. They hadn't gone through that, that physical right. There's a distinction that's different about them. As far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles were outcasts. They were called uncircumcision. In fact, David, in the story of David and Goliath, Goliath was called the uncircumcised Philistine, all because the Gentiles did not have that physical mark. But circumcision is something really of the heart, something that God does in the believer's, every believer's heart. But they were looking at the, the physical, the outward, and it's that so often that separates people, divides people. Paul's tone here is really one of, 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 of hatred. The, the way that 
they speak against the Gentiles. And it really should grieve our hearts when we hear people talking down to others. Well, you're not as spiritual, or you only read the King James, or whatever excuses that people make to divide the body of Christ, that rob God of His glory, the, the oneness of the body. Circumcision, in a physical sense, was never really a mark of, of a personal relationship with God, but, but when a person's born again, then He comes in and He cuts away the, the flesh of our heart, being sensitive to Him. Let me read Romans 2, verses 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is an outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. It's supernatural work that God does in the heart. And yet the Jews were trusting in their physical things that they have done, their traditions, and yet... We can do the same thing today. We have to ask God, is there, is there anything that I'm trusting in other than your son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for me and for you? Well, there's a, a spiritual alienation, and it's much more important. The Gentile alienation was spiritual. Notice again in our text back in Ephesians 2, it says, remember that you were at a time separate from Christ. Again, excluded from that commonwealth of Israel, strangers and covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in this world. Well, there was no moral difference, really, between a Jew and a Gentile. In verses 1 through 10, we saw earlier, there was a difference in God dealing with men. First of all, look at that idea that they were Christless or separate from Christ, the, the Messiah. There was no messianic, again, hope is what it's saying. No hope of a savior, no hope of a, a deliverer. They were without spiritual blessings, without any light, without any peace, rest or safety or hope or a prophet or a king. Second, the Gentiles were spiritually alienated because they were excluded from that commonwealth of Israel. God had made, again, the, the nation of Israel a, a chosen people, and they were to be a, a theocracy, meaning that they were to be under God. God was their leader, the head of the nation. And there is no other nation like that today, that God is the head of that nation. He himself to Israel, again, he was their king. He was their Lord. He gave the nation the special blessings of protection when you look at it, especially thinking about the book of Esther's. What a beautiful example when you read that book. Love. He gave them the covenants and the law, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, his promises and his guidance. That he would go before them and lead them and protect them. Psalm 147.20 says this, and he has not dealt thus with any nation as for his own ordinances. They have not known them. Praise the Lord. No other nation has been dealt with in the way that God has dealt with the nation of Israel. And that's not necessarily the nation of Israel today. While God has a remnant there, it's a very secular culture today. But soon and very soon, God is going to open up their hearts, circumcise their hearts. The time of the tribulation is coming where God is going to, to bring to himself the true Israel. Those who are submitted to him. Thirdly, when we see the Gentiles are spiritually alienated because they were without a, a covenant with God. They were strangers to the, the covenant of promise. 
Again, returning to Genesis chapter 12, verses two and three, notice again, I will make you a great nation. This is God's work. And then he says, I will bless you, referring to this nation, and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And you all, the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. See, the nations didn't have this, but the nation of Israel did. What would constitute again, really, Israel? Descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from those 12 tribes, the nation would come. Fourthly, we see the Gentiles were spiritually alienated because they were hopeless, having no hope. No hope of Christ, commonwealth, covenants of promise. True hope was based really upon only one thing, the, the, the true promise, the promises of God. Look with me in Psalm 146.5, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now, that word Lord, all caps, the covenant God, again, whose hope is in the covenant God, the promise, the promises talking about. God has made a, a covenant promise that he will keep. Whether man keeps it or not, God is true to his word. Fifthly, we see the most important, the Gentiles are spiritually alienated because they were really without God. Now, it's not saying that they were atheists. No, because they certainly believed in God. In Acts 17, 23, Paul speaking Mars Hill. This is for why I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship I also found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship, you worship in ignorance. And this I proclaim to you. And they had over 3,000 gods. Yet they were worshiping one unknown one just in case. And Paul would go on and explain who that God was, the true and the living God. See, they, they believed in gods. They just didn't believe in the true and living God. There are many today say, I believe in Jesus Christ but not the Jesus Christ that died in the Bible. They believe that he is just a creature. He's just an angel. He's not the son of God. He came in the flesh. They are without God. They are without a promise. They are without hope. The problem was not that the Gentiles didn't have again a God, but, but they really didn't have the true God. Many people believe themselves again to be very, very spiritual and religious. But if they do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they are without God. See, God's purpose, again, remember, in calling the Jews, calling them as a holy people was to send them out as as missionaries to the Gentiles, to call the nations back to God's grace and love. By the way, today, you too are a missionary. And if you're not a missionary, it's been said that you are the mission field. Because we've all been given that great commission to go out. We're sent. Sent into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our community, our island, to all the islands as God would lead each and every one of us in some capacity. And you really need to decide, am I a missionary or am I the mission field? Have I come to really know Jesus Christ or just do I know about him? It's not enough to know about him. There was a need though in the unity in the church. Those who were formerly far off were Gentiles who had not come to Christ or who had come to Christ, 
when they come to him, they, they were now within the body of Christ, but they, they weren't accepted. In the previous, it was far off. But now, a common term is that they were now come to Christ and they were to be one, one in him. The Jews, on the other hand, consider themselves, again, converts. To be brought near to God because of the covenant and the relationship. But they didn't accept them completely. When someone's here, praise God. Praise God that they're here and that it's a divine appointment and, and God wants to speak to them. It's not for me to be so consumed with what someone else is doing because that really brings a disunity. My concern is, is, is really to, to be faithful to God and keep my eyes and ears open to God to, to bring the truth and be thankful for everyone that is here because God's word does not come back void. He will accomplish what he set out to accomplish. Even if a person comes and they leave angry, if God has spoken to them, they will be accountable. And How do you know that God won't use that at a later time in their life? Each of us are without excuse. Ephesians 2.13, look again, but now in Christ Jesus, you are formerly were far off, but been brought near through the blood of Christ, through the work of the cross. They've been brought near. They're one in Christ. No matter what they may look like, dress like, they're in Christ. And that's the joy. That's the hope. That's the fun because we get to watch when a person comes to Christ and watch them change and grow and mature and see how God works in their family and works in their life. They're not our work. They're His work. God will bring that change to them. Not by any external or dispensational or national, geographic or ceremonial uh, again, nearness, but when they're brought by the blood of Christ, there's an intimacy, a union with the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and I should have that union with them. We, we should be excited. We should want to spend time with them. But because a, a root of bitterness, a sin, there's strife, discord, enmity, hatred, war, conflict. He brings about this disunity, all because sin, and, and we're in sin if we're not preserving that unity, looking to the Lord. Lord, what is it you want to do? What is it you want me to do? What do you want me to be a part of? And so often I found sometimes it's just wrapping an arm around someone, just spending time talking with them, loving them, praying for them. You know, when you come close to another person, a brother, a sister, you sit down with them, you come to know them, and you get to hear what God is working in. I love that because, but we don't have to come and, and try and change them and correct them because, you know, if you hear that heart for the Lord wanting to honor and surrender to them, all we have to do is pray and watch what God does. And what encouragement, what encouragement as we see them surrender to the Lord. I find I want to surrender more to the Lord. I think every one of us want to surrender to the Lord. Would you agree? Amen. But it's hard, isn't it? In, in some areas, you surrender one area, but not another area. And when we see a person going before us, and sometimes even a younger believer, it can be such a tremendous encouragement. But if we don't have that, we have this, this unity. The reason there's always perfect harmony in the Godhead is there's no sin in the Godhead. God is without sin. When there's the bickering and the fighting, the strife, the division, it's, it's all because of sin. No need to point a finger at anyone else. Well, what we need to do is, is look at our own hearts and realize it starts with us. But when there is no sin and there's this perfect holiness, it produces a perfect harmony. 
And it's usually not one person. There's a lot of players. People that should step up to the plate and say, no, this is wrong. Step up to the plate and maybe just pray. Step up to the plate and, and just be an encouragement. Step to the plate and sometimes run interference when there's a hurting situation and, and draw the tension away and put it back on Jesus Christ. We took communion last week and one of the purposes of, of, again of, of, of taking communion is, is remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made not only to bring us to himself but also to teach us how we can have perfect unity by denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following him daily. Again, the, the writer emphasizes again that, that, that he is our peace. Jesus alone is our peace. He is the very source of peace. Before a person comes to Christ, they were enemies, but when they come to Christ, uh, they now have peace with God, but then there becomes a peace when, when they're walking in the Spirit. There's a peace that passeth all understanding when things sometimes aren't going the way you think, but you know that God's in sovereign control. The peace doesn't come from ordinances or ceremonies or sacrifices. And none of these things can really make peace with God, no. They were only shadows, they were pictures to, to bring us to Christ. Only God himself, Jesus Christ, made the peace. Christ's sacrifice on the cross Jesus accomplished this peace for both the Jew and the Gentile to make them one. Just as sin causes conflict and division, it is also the enemy of peace and harmony. Peace comes only when I, self, choose to die. The only place that self truly dies is when I come to the foot of the cross. When I humble myself and remember what Jesus did for me, and this needs to be something I do daily. Matthew 16, 24 through 25 says this, And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, this is imperative. If you want to follow him, then what do you need to do? You need to deny yourself. It means in some way that you're going to pick up the cross. You're going to suffer because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. People will move away from you. People will find fault with you. But you will not compromise your faith in Jesus Christ. You will suffer in some way and you will follow in his footsteps. Now it goes on in verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See the one again who denies himself, picks up his cross. He's the one that will lose his life. Notice, for my sake, he and he only is the one that finds his life. Again, Jesus Christ came as a babe to this earth. In his sacrifice of the cross himself, he became our peace for those, that is, who trust and trust in him. Peace is not temporary, it's permanent for those that trust in him. He made both the Jew, the Gentile, one. It goes on in our text again into one and broke down that barrier, that dividing wall. And, and this becomes a dividing wall within the body of Christ. Now, the, the barrier of this dividing wall is looked at in several different ways. One of the ways it alludes to, is some say, is that separation of the court of the Gentiles, if you remember, and the rest of the temple. The Gentiles could only go so far. 
between the court and the court of the Israels was this sign that read, no Gentile, let me read the sign here, no Gentile may enter within the, the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and the enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuring death. You can't cross this line. You can't go any further. Well, some say, well, that, that, that's the barrier. The temple wasn't destroyed until 70 AD. I don't believe that's really the thing that divided the people. While it was a little bit of the division, those people were coming. They were, again, Gentiles, that's true. But I believe it's more than that because it was done at the cross. See, Christ broke it down, every dividing wall, by abolishing his flesh and the enemy, which the law and the commandments contained in the ordinances, in a sense, was nailed to the cross. Done. It was a done deal right at that moment. What did he abolish? Again, the greatest barrier between the the Jew and the Gentile was the the ceremonial law. There's many that try and hang on to that ceremonial law and say, well, unless you keep the Sabbath, unless you do this or that, 633 commands, God will not be happy with you. And only if you're a Jew, you can do this. And, And certainly the Bible makes it clear they couldn't even do it. The ceremonial laws, because he's not talking about the moral laws, because Jesus would restate those in the New Testament. But what he's talking about is the feasts, the sacrifices, the offerings, the law of cleanliness, purification, all the outward actions. If you were to go to the Wailing Wall in Israel, next there is a bathroom and they have a cup tied on a string and and there's a mark and you measure and you pour a certain amount of water here and here and it would make you ceremonial clean. No, because it doesn't cleanse the heart. You and I can boldly go to that throne of grace. You and I can confess our sins. He's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, what he did is he eliminated the the ceremonial laws and kept that moral law, which is his nature and his character, and, and then took that moral law and summarized it in the fact that we simply love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love our neighbor, because then we won't break the moral law. And that law is fulfilled in Christ. So God's moral law was not abolished. That's clear because it's separate from the ceremonial laws. And that's really the reflection there. John again, 1334 says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even if I loved you, that you also love one another. See, the ceremonial laws were distinguished and separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And that was the problem. Notice what Colossians says, chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, you and I can boldly come to the throne of grace. You and I can hold on securely to Christ. We can talk to him. We can know his presence. We can know that he speaks to us personally. We don't need to go through a priest. We go to directly to Jesus Christ. Notice what Romans 10, verse 12 and 13 says, for there, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter whether it's Jew or, or Gentile. See, when a, a person is, is a, a new person in Christ, he's no longer Jew, he's Gentile, but only one. He's a Christian. He's a believer in Christ. God sees that there is no distinction, but they believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16 in our text. And he might reconcile them both to one body, to God through the cross, by it having been put to death as enemy. And that's the thing is, it's the cross is really God's answer to Judaizing. It's God's answer to racial discrimination, segregation, anti-Semitism, war. The cross is God's answer to everything. Ephesians 3.6 says, which is a great mystery. To, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Why? Because they believed in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And in John 14, 27, it says this, Peace I leave with you, peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart troubled, nor let it be fearful, because he gives us this perfect peace. The fact is, we have access in verse 18, for through him we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. The access into to God's presence. The only door to the sheepfold, to the kingdom, is through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And Hebrews 4.16 makes it very clear. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Boy, I need a lot of grace. How about you? Boy, it, it seems like God is just not working today. Let's start all over. And I love that because I can start all over. And it carries me. And it carries you. See, those who are once socially and spiritually alienated are in Christ, united in God, united in each other. We our family, the family of God. I'm talking about those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible. It doesn't matter what culture, what background, it should not even be an issue. The only issue is it's all about Jesus. Again, Paul closes the section with this, with this marvelous unity of the body of Christ and, and giving us really three metaphors First, the picture is that we're fellow citizens. He shows how the Jew and Gentile, they become one in the kingdom. Oneness. See, that's what divides a church or all the body of Christ is when there's not this oneness. And again, we talked about that. That's sin. People will have different opinions, different preferences. But either you're in Christ or not in Christ. And if they're not in Christ and they're here, it should be the most joyful thing. No matter what their background is, God's word is always timely for you, for me, for that person, if we come to meet with him, if we come 
to hear him. The second picture he gives us is really is God's household. He shows how the believers are, again, one spiritual family. This is the household of God. It's not about a church name. This is the church of God, the church in Hilo. It focuses upon Jesus Christ. And we come and we worship him and we worship him in spirit and truth. We don't come with agendas. We come to exalt him, to, to lift up, to praise him, to see him. And you know what? He deals with our problems as we come and we'll look at him. He resolves them one by one. Finally, the picture is really of the holy temple in the Lord. And it shows that all believers, again, are, are together in the habitation of God. Again, that holy temple, we're being built up in him. And that we, Peter would use that term, we're living stones being built. And Jesus Christ being that cornerstone. Now, being united in, in, in God's kingdom is really important. Is, is Number one, there are no strangers in God's kingdom. There's no aliens. There's no second-class citizens. And that means here. No one's any better than anyone else here. The ground is level at the cross. I'm not more important than you. Just a, another part of the body functioning together. So again, there's no strangers, there's no aliens, there's no second-class citizens. In fact, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're going to be with him one day. And only citizens of heaven are God's saints, those who have been set aside for him, separated for him, vessels of, of honor. We are his workmanship. He will finish that work. Verse 19, it, it focuses on, again, that God's household. That's, that's, again, so important what he's doing in our life. Look with me in verses 20 and 22. We see, again, the, the foundation is, is of the apostles and the prophets. It refers to, really, that divine revelation that was taught, written in that form of that New Testament. It's the Old Testament now revealed in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 3.10 and 11 says this, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid the foundation. Another is building upon it, but each must be careful how he builds upon it, for no other man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's our foundation stone. He's our rock the cornerstone, all things hold together through him. That's what Jesus Christ is, is, is God's kingdom, God's family, God's building. That's you, that's me as believers in Christ. Stand with me, please. Father, we again thank you for your word that is timeless. Your word that guides us and directs us, it convicts us. It tells us what we need to do and how we can stay right. Thank you that it's you that are the great teacher that bring the illumination to us. We know apart from you, we can do nothing of any value. And Lord, we confess that we need you. We need you every hour. 